Lord, we've come to the time in this service when we open your word, and we glean from its pages and read from its words. We know, O oh Lord, that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that your word gives glory to God and gives identity to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. I ask you to touch me with divine anointing this morning that I can recall the things that you and I have spoken in private, that I can reveal them openly. Thank you for every family that has gathered here today, O oh God, in your honor for worship and to hear the word of the Lord. And I ask you to touch them with spirit ears that they can hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in Ohio, I was in a state official position, and I didn't have a church, so I preached at a different church every Sunday. Rachel was my companion. She loved to go to church with me. She wasn't but uh, three or four years old, and uh, she was riding with me one day, and we were coming back, and I'd, I think it was Freebus Avenue in Columbus, Ohio, where I'd preached that morning. We were coming down 71 Interstate, and she kind of snubbed a little bit. And I said, what's the matter? She said, I was thinking about that story you told today. And uh, another mile or so, and she looked over at me. She said, was that really true, or was you just preaching? <clears throat> you know, out of the mouths of babes. She's always been that kind. She's coming sometime today to see her daddy. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. Looking forward to see all my kids. I was, we were having dinner one night, and uh, I put her to bed. And uh, I said, now, Rachel, you stay there. Don't you get up. And in a few minutes, I heard, Daddy, would you bring me a glass of water? And I said, no, you're just trying to stay up later. You go to sleep. And she said, but Daddy, I need a glass of water. And I said, no, you're not. You're just trying to stay up. And uh, I said, you go to sleep. In a minute, she said, Daddy, would you please bring me a glass of water? And I said, no, and if you holler at me one time like that, I'm going to come in there and tear you up. It's long silence. Then she said, on your way in here to tear me up, would you bring me a glass of water? <laughs> so we know about the kids. Yeah. We were coming to church one Sunday, and I was going to preach about Moses and how that uh, two people held his hand up. And uh, I said, uh, Debbie, can you remember who that other person was? I know that Moses was fighting and Joshua was involved in it. I said, but I can't think of that other guy's name that was holding up his other hand. And Rachel spoke up in the back seat and said, it wasn't a man, Daddy, it was a woman. And I said, no, it was not a woman. It's two men held her, his arms up and they won the battle as long as they could hold his arms up. And I, I said, do you just ride to church? She said, well, I'm telling you, it was a woman. And so I got digging over there and got the concordance and went back, and, and the guy's name was Aaron and Her. H-U-R, Her. I said, oh, his name was Her. She said, I told you it was a woman, Daddy. 
I could write a book about Rachel, but I better preach. I'd like to take you now to the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, very oldest of the four gospels. Matthew is strongly influenced by Mark and wrote a lot of fill-ins to the story that Mark told. Mark was the most circulated gospel among the early church members. Mark was not one of the disciples, and that kind of gives him a special place as not being a writer in the New Testament who was a disciple. In fact, he heard most of what he heard from his parents and from other Christians, and then he related those stories on. And the Bible tells us that uh, Mark was uh, son of Sister Mary Mark. Sister Mary Mark was a member of the church at Jerusalem, and uh, her brother was Barnabas, who was the one we preach about on Friend Day every day, about bringing a friend to Jesus. Barnabas was a great co-laborer with the Apostle Paul, and they preached a gospel of salvation and redemption through the blood that was shed for us at Calvary's cross. That message has prevailed down through the years unto our time. And Mark was the son of this patriarch of the family and patriarch of the Christian church there and a prominent member. So he heard a lot of the stories that were told. Wasn't a first-hand uh, observer, but he was one who heard the stories and knew them very well. The story of Jesus and the crucifixion, it's in Mark chapter 11, and it starts off by talking about Jesus going into Jerusalem. In fact, during what we call Passion Week, Jesus made several trips almost every day into Jerusalem, and he went to Jerusalem for one purpose, and that was to go to the temple. And when he went to the temple, he found something that really upset him really bad. You know about it. It's called the cleansing of the temple. When Jesus observed money changers, and he observed people that were there to sell animals, and there were others there to gamble and do all kinds of things, and it angered Jesus that that all was taking place in a place called the temple, a place to worship, a place to celebrate the goodness of God and celebrate God's presence and celebrate His goodness to them. And the Bible said Jesus reacted in a very violent way, that He took a, a thorn, a whip, and He platted it, and He put things in it that would really make it hurt really bad. And the Bible said He chased them out of the temple and said, You've made my Father's house a den of thieves. Well, money changers is a term that is used for people who exchange currency because you couldn't go to worship at the temple, a Jewish temple, and put your offering in with Roman money. Boy, that's strange, isn't it? Most of us just accept money as money, but at that place at the temple, in Jewish temple, they had to change their money. And these uh, money changers were so corrupt that they charged sometimes 10 and 15 times what normal would be. Same with the people selling the animals that were coming in to give their life and shed their blood. Oftentimes the folks that were selling the animals would charge uh, eight or ten times their value and was putting a yoke upon the people. I think what offended Jesus most 
was that those merchandisers and money changers were putting an unbearable yoke upon the people who had come to worship. I think God feels very special about people that worship. I think the Lord is very, very near to people of a contrite spirit, but He's also very near to people who have a rejoicing spirit. People that come to sincerely worship the Lord with all their heart, their mind, and their soul. And I think that's what offended Jesus so much. It wasn't a few days after that until the officials, the religious leaders, isn't it strange that Jesus was killed by religious leaders? Religious leaders that were very upset with Jesus because they were expecting a king, you know, on Palm Sunday to ride in on a white horse with the mail and all the armor and that kind of stuff. And it wasn't a military or a warlike thing at all. And the Bible said Jesus came in riding on a donkey. That's a service animal, and it bears burdens. So Jesus wasn't assuming a throne and putting on a, a crown and putting on the vestments, but he was a humble servant of Jehovah. Amen. And the world little realized what was going on there, but the world was about to tilt on its axis especially when it comes to salvation and religion. When Jesus did what he did, he, he rebuked them in the temple and he cleansed the temple, but he also disappointed them in the fact that they were looking for a military conqueror, some Alexander the Great or a Napoleon or some of the great uh, leaders of armies, and they thought that that, that was going to happen in uh, Jerusalem and happen in Israel, so they would be freed from those oppressive Romans. But that's not what happened, and that wasn't the way it was. You see, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is a different kind of founder and a different kind of leader. He did not come to destroy. He came to give life. He did not come to injure. He came to heal. He did not come to deceive. He said, I am the truth and I am the life. He came not to co uh, condemn sinners, but He came to save sinners and to save that which was lost. But the Bible also tells us in John's Gospel that He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as did receive Him gave He power to become the sons of God. They hated Jesus because He claimed that King of the Jews, and He claimed that Son of the living God. They call that blasphemy. But most of us need to know you don't get crucified for blasphemy. That wasn't an offense in the Roman code nor in the Jewish code where that was against the law of any kind. But when the religious leaders changed that complaint to be a, he calls himself a king. We have no king but Caesar. He is not the king of the Jews. He didn't come in riding on the horse, and he didn't lead the military, and he didn't come in and drive them out. This Jesus has disappointed the expectations of us all. And the Bible said that they hated him, and that from that time forward, they took counsel on how they could kill him. And it's strange that Religious people can get to the point that they want to kill somebody. They wanted to kill him. Well, just a few days ago, they was crown him, crown him. 
Just a few days ago, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. But now one week later, they're ready to cry, crucify him, crucify him. So we find Jesus at the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest in all of Israel. He was the head of the church. His father-in-law is the former high priest, and his name was Annas. And they were at the house of Caiaphas, and the whole Sanhedrin was gathered there. When I say Sanhedrin, let's just say this Supreme Court was there. The supreme rulers, those that were in charge of everything religious in Jerusalem, they were all there. There were 71 of them. And they were split up into two groups. There were Pharisees and there were Sadducees. I think some of them were Church of God. They're sad, you see. Sorry, that just slipped out. When the Sanhedrin got together, they didn't have any kind words for Jesus. There was no one there to defend him. There was no one there to take his part. We're actually involved in the trial at this point. And the Sanhedrin put Jesus on the spot and began questioning him. And his trial took place in the house of Caiaphas, but when they were not satisfied. And I want to tell you, that house is still there. Brother, that was built by a pretty good carpenter and a pretty good bunch of folks to build a house that lasts 2,000 years. It's still there. I was in it last time I was in Israel and was in the very bin there, the grainage bin where they stored their grain where they kept Jesus overnight. Hmm. You know, he was arrested at night before, something like maybe 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And now he's appeared at the house of Caiaphas sometime during the night. And as he was held a, a captive by these religious leaders, and you know the story how that happened, don't you? You remember they were all celebrating Passover, and they were all in the upper room, and they were eating the Passover meal, or the Seder meal as it has come to be called. And when the, the Bible said good things happened in that upper room where they were assembled, and the Bible said that it had been prepared, and Jesus said, just tell the man that the master has need of it. And they all came in, and they reclined. Now, the portrait of Leonardo da Vinci of the Lord's Supper. How many of you have seen that? Oh, the rest of you need to go find you a good museum somewhere. You need to see that. How have you lived this long without seeing that? But they're all sitting at a table. Well, in the upper room, they weren't really sitting at a table. The way Jewish people eat their meals is they took these the couch-like pieces of furniture and they would put them uh, in a way that made a circle and they would lay on their elbow and would eat their food from a table in the middle. How about that? Well, it's a good picture. Leonardo did a good job with that. There's a big story to tell you about that one time too. There was a young man that sat for him to paint and he went and found the fairest, most beautiful person he could find, the most peaceable expression on a man's face, a wonderful light in his eye, a beautiful countenance about him. 
And Leonardo sat there and he, with paintbrush, stroked the canvas and painted first the man who would be Jesus. He wanted to paint Jesus first. Wow. He went through all the disciples. It took him ten years to paint the other disciples. And saving the worst for last, Judas. And finally he arrived at Judas and he went out again to find the man who had the darkest countenance about him. The man whose face was most wretched. The man who, who looked as if he'd been beaten up with life. And he went to a prison and he found a man and he told the prisoners, I want to paint this man. I need him to sit for me. And after he had painted him, the young man sat there and he began to weep, to weep. And tears ran down his cheeks. And he said to Leonardo, he said, you don't recognize me, do you? He said, I'm the man that you painted as Jesus ten years ago. Boy, what a story. What a story. Yet it tells us about the pathos of this whole unavailing ordeal. When Judas that night was outed, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And listen to this. And every one of the disciples said, is it me? Are you kidding me? Every disciple there thought it could be him. Wow. And Jesus said, the one who dips with me into the sop, he is the one who will betray me. And Jesus dipped into the sop and Judas was about to do the same. And Jesus looked at him and he said, that that thou dost do it quickly. And he said, it had been better for you that you had never been born than to betray the Son of God. So when he came to the Garden of Gethsemane and he kissed the cheek of Jesus and the soldiers were there and they arrested him and carried him to Caiaphas' house and Jesus went through all of the interrogation and all of the mockery and all of the verbal insults and all of the smiting in his face and all of the things that took place, the disputing among the religious leaders of Israel. And they realized we don't have a law that will allow us to put him to death. In Jewish law, there's no room for capital punishment. So they didn't have the right to kill Jesus. So they had to find somebody that could do it for them. And there was only one source that could do that, and that was the governor of the province of Palestine. And he was a man named Pilate, Pontius Pilate. In the amphitheaters there that are scattered throughout as the archaeologists are unearthing them, I saw one last time I was over there that had a seat in the middle of the amphitheater, and it's got P-I-L-A-T-E. He had a certain seat where he sat at the amphitheater. Don't you love it when history reveals the authenticity of the Bible and the Word of God? I love it when that happens. 
Pilate said, knew he was innocent. And he said, I don't find any fault in this man. Why have you come to me wanting me to kill him? He said, I don't, I don't have any evidence strong enough that would merit murder. I can't do this. Uh, my hands are tied. I can't do this. And then they changed the whole thing around. And they said, actually, this man claims to be a king of the Jews. And we have no king but Caesar. This man has blasphemed against Caesar. This man not only has blasphemed the God of our religion, he's now blasphemed against Caesar, claiming to be a king. Their intention was to get Pilate on their side. And Pilate realized, I'm in a trap here. He realized, I'm in a bad position. I'm in a bad place. And he said, I know. I'll try to trade them out something. And he said, listen, don't you Jews have a custom at Passover time that you always release a prisoner? And they said, yes, we do. He said, I, I've got one in prison right now. His name is Barabbas. But he said, I want to release Jesus instead of Barabbas. And they said, no, that won't work. We want Jesus. We don't want Barabbas. We want Jesus. And as they began to cry, crucify him, crucify him. Thank God for a good wife. Pilate's wife sent word to him and said, Have nothing to do with this innocent man. Wash your hands of that whole ordeal. Don't do this. But finally, Pilate realized, I've got to keep the good relationship with these religious leaders to make things go well. And the Bible said, Pilate said, take him away. And then the soldiers spat on him. And then the soldiers plucked out his beard. The soldiers disrobed him and, and put a robe of scarlet, of purple on him, which is the garb of kings. They wove and plaited a crown of thorns and pushed it down on his head. And no doubt, the blood ran down through his face. No doubt, the blood ran down his back as they pushed that crown of thorns. They found a reed and put it in his hand. And they said, and you are the king of the Jews. They mocked him and they laughed at him and they scorned him. It reminds you of what the Bible says in Isaiah 53 and 8. It talks about the shepherd, that the shepherd would be smitten and the sheep would be scattered. It emphasizes what is said in the prophecy. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him and with His stripes... We're healed. The Bible said they commanded him to carry his cross. And if you ever go with me to Israel, you'll find out there's 14 stations on the way that they call the Via Dolorosa. It's the path that Jesus took to the cross. And it's in underground, 
but they have unearthed the board that was used for gambling, where the Bible said they gambled for the things of Jesus. The Roman battalion that was stationed there at St. Anthony's, their, their, their shape of their battalion was a scorpion. And you can see, as you look at those rocks that are there, how they hewed and cut out a board for them, and there's a scorpion down on the corner of it, which is the emblem of the battalion that was at San Antonio's fortress. That Via Dolorosa would go through the heart of the old city, and the Bible said that if people had to be crucified, they had to be crucified outside the gate of the city. So the Bible said just outside the Damascus gate, Jesus was suspended upon a cross, nails through His hands and nails through His feet. The pictures are, are very pretty. Gruesome and tough, but pretty that we've got all of these pieces of jewelry about Jesus on a cross. But actually, He wasn't have feet together and hands out like this. The way they crucified criminals is they would turn their feet to the side like this and they would drive a spike through their Achilles tendon and into the wood. Most of the criminals died of asphyxiation. They didn't die from the wounds. They died from asphyxiation because they could no longer hold themselves up and they would slump and couldn't get their breath. Just such a death as that, the Lord Jesus died. Just such a death as that, when He was suspended between heaven and earth, as if abandoned by everyone. Where are the disciples? They ran away. Where is there anybody that would defend Him? Is there anybody that would stand there and say, don't do this, you can't do that? And there was no one. The song says, but He died alone. He died for you and me, and He died alone. Died alone. There were some women. Thank God for the women. Pilate had a good wife that said, you better not do this. There were some women that were at the cross. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus, there was Mary, the other Mary, who was the mother of James and Joseph. There was Mary Magdalene, a lot of Marys. Mary of Magdala, the city of Magdala. Mary of the Magdalene, out of whom the Lord cast seven devils, the Bible said. You see, people with a sordid past are welcome at the cross of Jesus. People with a dark, gloomy past are welcome because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And there are no big eyes and little U's at the foot of the cross. Everyone and everybody is welcome at that cross. I often say the cross was the place where man was at his worst 
and God was at his best. Calvary was the place. Calvary was the place where mercy and truth kissed each other. Calvary is the place where justice met grace. Calvary is the place where God turned his face and would not look upon Jesus because he represented the sins of the whole world. All those heinous sins that you see on your television of the murder and the incest and the killing and slaying and molestation and all of the terrible, atrocious, heinous things that you can imagine. All of that, the Bible said, nailing our sins to His cross. Nailing our sins to His cross. That was for you and you and you, everyone in this building. Everyone on that highway out there. Everyone in this county. Everyone in this state. Everyone in this country. Everyone in this hemisphere. Everyone in this world. The Bible said He died for the sins of the whole world. Born our sorrows, our griefs, and our despair was nailed to that cross. And when Pilate sent soldiers and said, I want you to let me know when he's dead. I've got to know when he is dead. And the soldiers came and said, we pierced his side and forthwith came blood and water. He didn't respond. He's dead. You don't have to break his legs. You see, the custom was if they lived a long time, they'd break their legs so they would die sooner. They told Pilate, he's already dead, so there's no need to break his legs. How beautifully the Bible predicts that will happen, that not one bone of his body would be broken. Praise our God. Aren't you glad the Word of God is faithful and true? And a secret disciple. Well, that's a strange term, isn't it? A secret disciple. Joseph of Arimathea came and Nicodemus came and they begged for the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, the place where criminals who've been crucified were to be buried was the town garbage dump. But the Bible had made a prophecy that he would be placed in a new tomb wherein no one had been placed. That would take a very rich person, a very well thought of person to have a, a tomb hewn that no one had ever been put in. And Joseph went to Pilate and the Bible said he begged for the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted him his request. And he and Nicodemus took that blessed, sacred body. Down from that cross, 
and placed it in a tomb and rolled a stone to the front to secure it. And the Bible said something very interesting. It said, and the women watched on and saw everything. They not only followed Jesus to the cross, they followed him to the tomb. They followed him to the tomb. Now there are those that have a lot of opinions about that. There are people that oppose the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus that say that can't happen. Those disciples stole him away. I read one just before coming to the service today. A new one. That the women went to the wrong tomb. And they just imagined the angel and just imagined where that was. Well, I'll tell you this. I just told you that the women that went to the tomb, the Bible said they saw everything. I've got enough confidence in women to know that if they've been to a tomb, the next day they can go back to that tomb. They don't get lost and wander into another tomb. Boy, there's many points right there about that empty tomb. Josh McDowell, one of the great writers of the last century, wrote a book. It's a thick one. It's about like that. It started out to be a thin one, he said, but it got bigger. He titled the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Google it when you get home. If you hadn't got a copy, you need it. He started out as an agnostic. Started out as a critic. Started out as an unbeliever trying to disprove the resurrection. And after he started digging and started searching, he got saved and became a Christian because he found evidence that demanded a verdict. And now he's one of the greatest proponents of the resurrection that there is. What does that all mean for us? Come on, Olivia. What does that mean for all of us? It means that death, the enemy of eternal life, has been dealt a terrible blow. That means that death has been defeated. It means that the grave has no more power. It means that the sting of sin, death, hell, and the grave have been defeated by one event, and that one event is this, that on the first day of the week, about the dawning of the day, whew, Charles, my good preacher, model, S.M. Lockridge, preaches a message he calls the funeral of Jesus. And he says, death came by. And he said, have you still got Jesus? And the grave said, yep, I've still got Jesus. He came back the next day and John, he said, oh grave, 
Have you still got Jesus? And they said, oh, yes, I've got Jesus. But on that Easter Sunday morning, when death's prison bars were broken, death came by and he said, oh, grave, have you still got Jesus? And the grave said, let me tell you what happened about the dawning of the day. There was a shaking and there was a trembling. There was an earthquake that paralyzed soldiers. And they sat there petrified and couldn't move. And there was an angel came down and he rolled the stone away. And he got up and took his seat and sat down. Hallelujah. And watched the proceedings. And when some women, women came, they asked, where is Jesus? We want to anoint his body for his burial. We want to do right by him. And the angel said, good intentions. Glad you did it, but he's not here. Hallelujah. He's not here. He has risen. And thus began the whole story of reaching the world with the Christian message. The Bible said, For if Christ be not raised, our preaching is vain, and our faith is vain. And ye are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified that God raised up Jesus, whom he raised not. If the dead rise not, if so be that the dead rise not. Twelfth verse of 15th chapter of Corinthians says, But now is Christ risen from the dead. And become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Blessed be His name. And because Jesus lives, we shall live also. And the Bible said that Jesus, supper being ended, He took the cup. And He took the bread and He blessed it. And He said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat. In like manner also, he took the cup. And he said, this is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for you. Drink ye all of it. 
And then he said, as oft as you eat my body and you drink my blood, you do show forth the Lord's resurrection until He comes. This do in remembrance of me. There are two different schools of thought about that wafer and that juice. Some believe in transubstantiation, which means they believe a miracle takes place and that in your digestive system that actually becomes the flesh and the blood of Jesus. Our Catholic brothers and sisters, they, they believe that. Actually, these are symbols. They're tokens that lead us to an understanding of what Jesus did for us at the resurrection. God sent His Son. They called Him Jesus. He came to love. Heal and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, thank God I know, He holds my future. And life is worth the living just because He lives. Hallelujah. Can you give God some praise this morning? Stand with me all over this house. God bless you and thank you so much for coming today and celebrating the Lord's resurrection. But I want you to know the resurrected life is about newness, about a transition from the old. And I want to tell you that if you have struck on hard times and you've realize that life's got to be a lot better than this, I want to tell you, there's a Savior. He's not dead. He's not on that cross anymore. But He right now, with outstretched arms, is saying, Come unto Me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn of Me, for I am meek and lowly at heart. He's the answer tonight. You may search this world, world over, but you'll never find satisfaction until you find the Lord. I said, until you find the Lord. Until you find the Lord. Until you've known just how it feels to know that God is really real. Then you've known nothing until you've known God and His love. 
If you don't know Him, you need to know Him. And I admonish you, take that step and make that move. God, in Jesus' name, I thank You for allowing us to be in Your presence today. Thank You, O God, for all of Your people that are gathered in this house. And I pray, O Lord, that Easter will be a happy occasion for everyone and a safe occasion. Keep us in the palm of your hand and keep us, O Lord, in your watchful eye. We love you and we praise you and we give you all glory. You're the God of all grace. And to you is the power and the glory and dominion forever and forever, world without end. Amen and amen. God bless you. You have the greatest uh, Easter that you've ever had. And I pray that you're a happy this Easter and all of your family as well. God bless you and God go with you is our prayer.